Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. O God, it is to blessed Joachim and Holy Anne, that of them might be born the mother of thine only begotten Son. Grant unto us at their intercession a place in the fellowship of thine elect, wherein forever to praise thee for thy loving kindness. The same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So we begin with a, a, a little review, a very short review. So to explain uh, the Synod on Synodality, we had to distinguish between what is a council and what is a synod. And we talked about how, uh, in for the most part, councils deal with doctrine and synods deal with discipline and governance. That is how the doctrine of the church is lived out and then how the church itself is governed. And we also talked about how councils, what is what is decided at councils is binding upon the entire church that all Catholics must adhere to whatever doctrine might be promulgated through a council, but that synods are advisory principally. They tell the bishop how things might be, but he is not obligated after the synod to adopt what the advice is. So councils deal with what is always true and has always been true and can never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And synods discuss that which is mutable. So things within the church that can be changed are discussed at synods. And indeed, after a synod, something may in fact be changed, because after all, we're trying to figure the best way to, to articulate the truth and bring people more, more people home uh, to, to their heavenly abode. So what both a council and a synod have in common is their goal, which is, of course, we should know this sort of intuitively, the goal of any time the church gets together and discusses anything the objective, the goal, is salvation of souls. So both a council and a synod agree that this is accomplished in uh, three ways. First, the salvation of souls is accomplished through the sacraments. The sacraments are the sure means of grace, 
by which our souls are cleansed and then given strength to do what is right. Second, we accomplish the salvation of souls through the teachings of the church. We can find them, obviously, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and this includes what we confess as Catholics, and then in the moral life, how we are to live it out. Third, we accomplish the salvation of souls to our ministry. The ministry of the church has to do with how the sacraments are administered, how the truth is communicated, how the faithful are accompanied, how those living in darkness are enlightened, and how the poor are ministered to, both the spiritually and the materially. And so for the first two, with regard to the sacraments of the church and the teachings, which accomplish the salvation of souls, these things are unchangeable. But with regard to the ministry, how the church ministers to the faithful, these things are in fact mutable. These things can be changed. And so these really are where we should be when we are at a synod. So what changes through a synod are one, pastoral methods, two, pious practices, three, pedagogy, that is to say how things are taught, and four, governance. Our concern is to communicate the love of Jesus Christ so that the salvation of souls is accomplished in terms of ministry through the charity of the people of God. So whenever we have a synod, whenever we have a gathering of the people of God, uh, whether it be uh, the bishops and the synod bishops that the Pope has, that he's had since the papacy of Paul VI, or a diocese calls a synod and has advice uh, from all kinds of people giving it to the bishop. What we're trying to do always is how can we love better? How do we communicate charity to those either who don't have it or those who are living in the church and aren't living into it, aren't living up to it? And so charity is unchanging. It's impossible to have a synod that is not concerned with charity, because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're talking about anything at all in the church, we're talking about love. If we're talking about anything at all as Christians in a discussion, we're talking about how best to love our neighbor as ourselves. Thou shalt love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the first and great second of the commandments, right? So, therefore, charity is overall. So, this brings us to the Synod on Synodality. The one that we are in the midst of began in 2021, will conclude in 2023. The Synod on Synodality seeks to hear how the Holy Spirit would have the Church accompany those who are on their way to heaven. How can the Church accompany those who are on the way to heaven. This is something the Pope has uh, emphasized over and over and over again, that we are walking with, how are we journeying with those who are on their pilgrimage through this Valley of Tears. So it proposes that people from all walks of life in the church listen to each other, that together we may ask questions and find answers 
in the way of reform. So it's not simply a uh, question asking period, nor has he made very clear is it simply an expression of one's opinion about matters within the church. It is rather how do we ask questions and find answers in the way of reform so we might better accompany our brothers on the way to heaven. So the dioceses of the United States have arranged listening sessions. And I want to read what the Holy Father said uh, with regard to uh, these listening sessions. I just want to, there's a quote from him, directly from him at the sermon that he preached when he began the synod. He said, allow everyone to enter. Allow yourselves to go out to meet them and allow yourselves to be questioned. Let their questions be your questions. Allow yourselves to walk together. The Spirit will lead you. Trust the Spirit. Do not be afraid to enter into dialogue. Allow yourselves to be disrupted by the dialogue. It is the dialogue of salvation. I have come here to encourage you to take the synodal process seriously, to tell you that the Holy Spirit needs you. This is true. The Holy Spirit needs us. Listen to him by listening to each other. Don't leave anyone out or behind. It is necessary to get out of the 3 to 4% that represents those closest to us and go beyond that to listen to the others who will sometimes insult you. They will chase you away. But it is necessary to hear what they think without wanting to impose our thing. Let the Spirit speak to us. So I wondered, uh, and this is where Phil Kelsey, we might have a discussion. I wondered if these listening sessions that the Holy Father described there, uh, and I know that we've had them here in Scranton, I wondered if in other parts of the country and other dioceses, uh, you've heard about these things and perhaps maybe even participate in them. Is Could anybody maybe offer some insight for me there? Yeah. Um, so, Father Bergman, you're welcome to call on people. I see Teresa, you have Teresa your hand raised. Yeah, Teresa yeah, was the can, first one I saw. Yeah, I can share that. Here in the Arlington Diocese in Virginia, we had a listening session with the bishop at Our Ladies Conference in March, and then our local parish also had a listening session in April. Okay. And they posed two questions, and then people volunteered and answered. Thank you. I saw that Anne-Marie had, had, had uh, raised her hand as well. We also had uh, a listening session, and the way it was structured in the Austin Diocese was um, all the parishes were supposed to do a parish-level listening session and then take that to a, um, like a, a regional listening session. And our particular parish didn't have a parish one, um, but we did participate in one that was uh, the, the regional one. And we, Tom and I were like the only people who hadn't participated in one and like everybody else that was there. And most of the people that were there were saying that the questions were all the same questions that they had already kind of gone through. But it was a lot of questions. It wasn't two questions. We had like slides and it was a lot of questions. And yes, the bishop was there. Um, he didn't speak or say anything. Um, he was just there. So 
it it was it got a little crazy. <laughs> it it was kind of embarrassing at some points that I I felt people were very um, acting improperly that okay. they weren't keeping the decorum of the situation. Okay, thank you. And I'll tell you one more person. I can see uh, uh, Patricia. You have your hand up. Yes, thank you, Father. Um, I am in New Jersey, and there was a listening session on the diocesan level, uh, but nothing at the parish level as of yet. Okay, very good. And I saw a whole bunch of people also, they've been popping these things up about how often uh, uh, across the country, and it's seen from all the way from Washington to Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and, uh, and I saw you represented Texas, uh, New Jersey, and, and also uh, Virginia. So uh, and my daughter goes to school out in uh, uh, Pittsburgh and Duquesne, and they had the same uh, sort of session uh, there where they were given uh, questions and they responded and uh, the data was taken down and then handed uh, up. So I encourage you, if they would have another one, uh, to participate in this and to actually uh, go. I'm, I, I'm, I want you to participate. I don't want to poo-poo that in any way. I want you to participate. But here we begin to see, uh, to identify some of the problems with both the premise and those who are collecting your answers. And so I'm going to uh, list a few of what I see as the problems of the synod and synodality, the synodal process, uh, as we go forward to next year. First, and this is the most obvious problem, and it's one that's been on the mind of so many people and brought up over and over again, as I have heard at these listening sessions. First, the church ignored for several decades the cries of those who were sexually abused, while the very people who should have heard their complaints didn't answer the ones who are crying, but rather protected the offenders. The sexual abuse crisis is truly a scandal because it caused the loss of faith in so many people. This is something that I've come across over and over and over again, is that the institutional church failed so monumentally in failing to listen. Precisely in failing to listen, she failed monumentally. So here we're having these listening sessions all over the place. And for 30, 40 years, people were saying, oh, please listen to me. Uh, and the church ignored them. Not only did they ignore them, uh, occasionally they paid them off. Uh, but the people who had done the wrong thing uh, were allowed to continue victimizing others. So this was a gross uh, lack of responsibility and a gross inability to behave as fathers. And this is something I've covered last year. I don't know if you were the when I talked about marriage and the family last year, uh, the failure on the part of the bishops was in being fathers. Because certainly if these things had occurred uh, to any of my sons, uh, I would have behaved in a much different way than most, many of our bishops have. Uh, the, the molestation of our sons and daughters uh, and uh, for, to allow to last for so long, for so many years, while so many cries were ignored, is, is the grossest scandal that the church has endured 
since the Protestant Re Revolution, uh, which began in 1517. So this is the worst scandal we have seen in the church in 500 years. And it happened not only because of the perversion of so many priests who represent only 2%, it's true, but the perversion of so many priests, but it's also happened precisely because the church didn't listen to those who repeatedly over and over and over again were saying, help us, help us, help us, and their cries were ignored. Second, the liturgical abuses that are so destructive to sincere piety and mature faith have been allowed to persist, even as Summarum Pontificum, which was meant to address some of these concerns and find a way by which the abuses would cease and the liturgy would once again be respectable in every single locale. This very document, which came out in 2007, not that long ago, just 15 years ago, the very year I was ordained to the priesthood, this document has been suppressed. And those who are traditionally minded, the Catholics within the church who adhere to the old rite, the 62 Missal, as well as many others who might simply describe themselves as uh, conservative, they have been vilified, if not outright ostracized. So we see a horrible uh, rhetoric with regard to people who are very faithful. These aren't people who are heretics. They are not denying the faith. They are not denying the truth. They simply adhere to the use of a different liturgy. And this is something that is, is, is we've always had in the church. I mean, uh, the Catholic Church means universal. So uh, the way I talked about the Eastern Rites uh, last week and how the Second Vatican Council declared that they're all equal uh, in dignity and in stature and uh, all equally to be respected. So when we see the people who adhere to the ancient rites, uh, that is the ones that are in the use in the church from around uh, 500 till uh, 1969, uh, when we see them vilified and in some cases ostracized, and when the Holy Father writes a letter that is so detailed, it says whether or not the masses, according to the 62 Missile, may be advertised in parish bulletins. This is not a good development. This is contrary to the very charity that a synod is supposed to uphold. The, the uh, suppression of Simon Pontificum, and we don't even get to know uh, what the bishop said. They said, oh, we have to protect the confidentiality of the bishops. So all their questionnaires that they sent back to us, uh, uh, we aren't going to reveal anything. We simply tell you they said it was bad. So now we're t getting rid of some pontificum, uh, and, and we're going in many places to uh, suppress the use of uh, uh, the ancient rites. So this is uh, a bad development that, again, demonstrates a failure on the part of the Holy See to listen, because there would not be such demand and such growth in these particular communities. And of course, I'm not part of one. I, I observe it. We have a, 
a 62 missile parish uh, really just two miles away from me, which is growing by leaps and bounds and has been uh, for years. Uh, they aren't listening. Why are these parishes growing? This would be a question that obviously I would ask. Uh, why, why do they have so many families with young children? Uh, rather than listen to them, they're simply, uh, uh, if not ignored, uh, intentionally neglected. So this is, this, is not a, this is a contradiction, as I said, of the charity that a synod is supposed to engender. Third, the German synodal way, which of course is not a synod, as I pointed out last week in the question and answer session, the German synodal way has been rightly condemned. Most recently, last week, by the Holy See itself. I mean, uh, we know that this uh, note, though it was unsigned, uh, came from Pope Francis because it quotes his letter from 2019 that this synodal way in Germany uh, has been dis has been condemned as dis as divisive. That is a rupture with the constant teaching of the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. That the German synodal way is a rupture, not a continuity of what the church has handed down to us uh, for the last 2,000 years. And the Holy See again reiterated it uh, last week after we had had our uh, discussion uh, here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, we got people all, also, all asked about the German Sonoma way and sure enough, boom, uh, the Holy See issues uh, this statement and that was very good. Yet at the same time, while the Holy See has been so clear that the teachings of the church will not change, she has at the same time, with regard to dubia from the College of Cardinals, these dubia have been ignored when clarifications have been sought. And this is on any number of issues. We're not just talking about, uh, obviously, Amoris Laetitia and the dubia that were issued there. We also have questions about the Holy Father's statement about the death penalty. Uh, there's any number of things, I and mean, we could go on and on. Uh, the the dubia are presented, and repeatedly uh, they are ignored. So uh, while the Holy See is willing to uh, address the Germans and their machinations, it's like a clown show up there, uh, and even even uh, issued a another repetition that no same-sex unions cannot be blessed ever. And this, of course, came from the Holy Father himself from through the Congregation Doctrine of the Faith. And what's the Germans' response? To go do a whole bunch of uh, same-sex blessings. Nobody gets punished. I didn't see anybody get removed. Uh, none of the bishops who have overseen this got removed uh, in the way that the Bishop of Bling got removed uh, a few years ago. So we have this contradiction between, on the one hand, this is the truth, and on the other hand, uh, what are we going to do to defend it? Sometimes nothing. We won't even clarify the questions from people who are in the College of Cardinals. Fourth, Pope Francis has rightly called St. Paul VI, whom he himself canonized, a prophetic pope for what he wrote in Humana Vitae. He has said that St. Paul VI was prophetic, and he has repeatedly and forcefully condemned the crime of abortion. He says that abortion is akin 
to hiring a hitman to kill your child and has described the throwaway culture. He abhors it and says that abortion is a sign of a throwaway culture in which we throw away even the precious gift of life which is given to us by our Heavenly Father. These, this violence against the innocent, he has made clear, is inimical to the gospel of life. At the same time, he has dismantled the Pontifical Academy for Life, and he has appointed members who have not been declared heretics. So I'm not saying they are heretics. Let me be very clear. I'm not calling anybody a heretic. They are simply espousing heresy. They are saying things that are false. And just two weeks ago, pressed for the Holy Father, the same man who had appointed them, pressed the Holy Father to write an encyclical to change the teaching on contraception. The very encyclical that the Holy Father said is prophetic. Fifth, Pope Francis has rightfully, repeatedly encouraged the faithful to go to the margins. And you saw that in the quote that I read from him. And everything he said in that uh, quote, I agree with wholeheartedly. To go to the margins to hear what they have to say. And yet, he appoints men to the College of Cardinals who resemble in their theological convictions the same sort of people that he appointed to the Pontifical Academy for Life. So he wants us to listen to those on the margins, but then he appoints liberals who are very mainstream in their opposition within the context of Western civilization to traditional Catholic teaching. So if he were to go to the margins, in my estimation, he might go to a country like the Congo or Nigeria, where uh, less than 10% of people approve the use of contraception. Instead, he goes to America and appoints the most liberal of our bishops, uh, where 98% of Catholics self-report having used contraception sometime within their married life. So you, so there's really a, uh, a sort of a mainstreaming, that's a Eurocentric point of view, even as he over, the, over and over again tells us to go to the margins. And he's appointed cardinals from all over the world. And he has gone to places that have never had cardinals before. Uh, but if we look at their theological uh, views, they very much look like the Cardinal uh, Bishop of San Diego, for example. Sixth, even as faith in the Eucharist is waning, and we learned uh, from the Pew Research uh, report just a year ago that only about 30% of Catholics actually believe that the elements of Holy Communion are the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, uh, that in uh, the host and the chalice we have he who is actually Jesus, which is, of course, the teaching of the church. We talked about that last week with the doctrine of transubstantiation, officially promulgated in 1215, but believed since the beginning of the church. At a time when only 30% of 
Catholics believe this in the United States of America, this same regime within the church oversaw the worldwide shutdown of the churches due to the COVID-19 disease. So if we want to encourage the belief that we need the sacraments and that in Holy Communion is healing and that the Lord certainly would not kill us through the administration of the sacraments, but rather save us and give us life, then the last thing we should want to do is shut down all the churches. People who are worried about getting sick, they cannot go to church. But to shut down all of the churches and not even permit for weeks and months, and in some places over a year, the reception of Holy Communion, this is an absurd scandal. How can we increase faith in the Eucharist? When we're telling people, don't go to Mass, you don't get to receive Jesus. So, the very people who have presided over these contradictions will be the ones who are collecting their responses to the Synod on Synodality. And I didn't, I, I can't, just like last week, it would be impossible for me to go through all 21 of the ecumenical councils and explain uh, the various doctrines that are promulgated. And I had to sort of cherry pick and just come up with seven examples for you. I did the same thing today. I could go on and on about the contradictions that we notice within the church and now this insistence that we're going to be listened to when all evidence seems to indicate that we're being ignored. I could go on about that. But what I want to point out is that it is clear which voices the people running this show are inclined to hear. It is also clear which voices they would rather remain silent and not say anything, or uh, at least which voices they uh, will simply dismiss. As the faithful come to these listening sessions and they speak openly, as they should, and I'm sorry to hear that in some places there's been a lack of decorum and uh, there evidently has been a lack of charity as we're trying to pursue charity, which is a contradiction again and, and horrific, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but as the faithful go and try to indicate what the Spirit is saying, do we have a method for the discernment of spirits, as St. Paul mentions, of course, in 1 Corinthians. If we're talking about the Spirit speaking, we have to figure out which Spirit is speaking. Who is it? Are we, in fact, sure that it is the Holy Spirit? Or is it some other Spirit? So if we're all talking at one of these listening sessions, and some people are saying crazy stuff, as in, contrary to the doctrine of the Catholic Church that has been held since apostolic times, and saying, this is what I'd like to see, or this is what I think is the problem, is someone saying, this can't be the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says, the Spirit will never tell you to say, Jesus be cursed. The Spirit can't tell you to say that. That is impossible. That never happens. So, is there someone at each of these listening sessions saying, oh, that's out of bounds. 
That isn't from the Spirit. That can't be, because what you are saying is Jesus be cursed. And the Spirit will not lead you to say Jesus be cursed. If it is the Spirit leading you to say this, it is not the Spirit of God. So is there someone at these sessions dismissing absurdities and heresies out of hand? And I don't think that that's happened. If if uh, if any if that's happened to en- at any of these, uh, I'd like you to share it. All right, let me know. I'd love to hear it. It'd be so awesome. Therefore, we are handicapped as the synod gets underway and gains steam. We are handicapped by a crisis of credibility. The church and the eyes of so many of the faithful has lost its credibility precisely because of her failure to listen. So you haven't listened to so many people within the church. This is not everyone. And of course, it is, I'm not saying that it's Pope Francis at all. So many people. And they put their own, uh, the, the bishops that wrote this garbage from the Pontifical Academy for Life saying you ought to change, throw out humana vitae and change the teaching on contraception. They sign their names to it. They put their names down, saying what they want. So you haven't listened to St. Paul VI. You haven't listened to St. John Paul II, what he wrote in the Gospel of Life. And now you're going to listen to me? You're not going to listen to me. It's complete loss of credibility. How many of you were in the Episcopacy when this scandal of the sexual abuse crisis was unfolding. How many of you were priests when you knew these things were happening and said nothing? How many of you were at seminary when these horrific things that have been described in many places were happening? How many of you didn't stick your neck out to stop the perversion? The church has lost credibility with so many, so what will the answer be? The answer will simply be the assertion of authority. It's not just the disciplines that they seem to want to change, but also the doctrines. So how can we trust them? We should be able to simply enter into a synod with complete trust and know all we're talking about is how better to communicate the truth of the faith that we all hold. But then you come in from left field and tell us you want to throw out contraception? Are you kidding me? This is a joke. This is a joke. It isn't a credible process if, when we're dealing with synods, we're talking about changing doctrines. It's not, it's lacking in integrity. What's missing in all of this is holiness. St. John Paul II called on us not to be afraid. He said, be not afraid. He said, confront the spirit of the age and overcome it. Remember, he when he went to Poland in 1979 and the people were chanting, we want God, we want God. Well, he gave them God. And all kinds of people risk life and limb uh, in Poland and in all these countries in the Eastern Bloc. And he had, of course, walked that walk, living not only under communist tyranny, he had lived under Nazi tyranny. So he knew of what he spoke. And so he spoke with a certain integrity when he told people not to be afraid. And now we have people who say, just conform with what's going on around you. And 
John Paul called us to be holy, and so many people within the current uh, regime are telling us that we can't uh, really expect to be holy. How can we be expected to abide by what the church teaches? Uh, how can we expect it not to be afraid? So it's the, so there's uh, a lack of leadership, uh, a lack of leadership in terms of inspiring us to aim higher. St. Paul VI insisted, of course, through Humana Vitae, which as I told you last week, if you read any, if you had one book from the 20th century, that would be the one book to read. And it's very short. It'll take you about a half hour, an hour. But it's the most important thing written in the 20th century. He insisted in it that we are, in fact, capable of self-control. We are, in fact, capable of self-control. And we are ennobled by our fidelity to the truth. That our fidelity to the truth ennobles us. And, of course, we paid a heavy price. Yesterday, yesterday... July 25th, 1968, that was the 54th anniversary of the promulgation of Yonavite. It was the last encyclical he wrote. The response to it was so vitriolic, with rebellion across the globe, uh, not just in Belgium, not just in the Netherlands, uh, but Canada. Uh, and, and I've told you this story before, the day after it was published, it was published actually on uh, July, July 25th. It didn't come out until July 29th. On July 30th, in the Baltimore Sun, there was a full-page ad of all the priests who said, we don't believe this. They put their names to it, but the Holy Father stood firm. And then, of course, John Paul and Benedict the Sixteenth, all, uh, they spent a lot of their pontificate backing up what our Holy Father, St. Paul VI, had said. So uh, here we are uh, with uh, these two, literally saints. They're in heaven, and every Catholic is required to confess uh, that these two men are in heaven because the Church has canonized them saints. We aren't, we aren't required to say that Our Lady appeared at Guadalupe. We aren't required to say that Our Lady appeared at Fatima. We aren't required to say that Our Lady came to Lourdes. But we are required to say that these two men John Paul II and Paul VI are in heaven. And if the bishops of the world don't listen to them, when so many of the faithful have heard them loud and clear, what makes these bishops today think we're going to listen to them? I've talked to you before about the problem of Luther's son. If you reject what your fathers have taught you, you can have no expectation that your son will listen to you. So they're telling us we're going to have a synod on synodality, and we're going to listen to each other. But I'm not listening to anything that those people said before. But now I want you to listen to me, and I'll listen to you. It's uh, an exercise in chaos. If you reject what your fathers have taught you, you can have no expectation that your son will listen to you. And yet, amazingly, but not surprisingly, these bishops think we're going to listen to them, even as they openly repudiate what their fathers taught them. You know what that's called? Protestantism. It's not called it's not Catholicism, it's called Protestantism. So if we aren't capable of holiness, why then should we be appalled 
by the crimes of the wolves. We are all appalled. It's a it's a punch in the gut. It sickens us. And and countless tears have been shed for what happened to these children. But if those guys weren't actually capable of controlling themselves anyway, why are we sad? People don't understand the contradiction. If we're sad about them, and we should be, then we can uphold the call to holiness and say they should have been holy too. If we can be holy, they could have been holy. The grace that is available to me is available to you and to everyone else. We are not Jansenists. We reject the lie that only certain people get the graces. Everyone gets the graces. They are available to everyone if we respond to the working of God in our lives. We can achieve holiness and be participants in the beatific vision before the throne of grace. We can. And people who reject Catholic teaching with regard to holiness make a mockery of this reality. So the answer, the answer is to live out holiness and point to it. So in the midst of so much confusion and so many contradictions, the answer for us, even as we, out of a sense of fidelity to the Holy See, at a sense of duty, we don't boycott this process, we participate in it. But what's more important than participating in the synodality is to go to Mass on every Sunday and Holy Day of Obligation. We receive what we require, if possible, even on a daily basis, to do what we must. First thing, we go to Mass. Secondly, we abide in every way by the Church's teaching. We do not cherry-pick. I will never teach you. And I tell this to when I do premarital counseling, uh, when I preach from the pulpit at my parish, of which I am the pastor, when I do Christian education, I will never teach you anything that comes just from me. I am simply a conduit of God's grace, and I will teach you what is true in every age. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I believe it. doesn't matter what I believe if I'm saying it on my own. What matters is what the church teaches. Of course, I do believe what the church teaches, but we can't be cafeteria Catholics. We have to abide by the church's teaching. Third, share your faith. We are required in a time where there's all kinds of confusion to indicate to our neighbors that we aren't confused. I am not confused. I was confused. I was a Protestant. I was very confused. I was walking in darkness. And God, in his infinite mercy, showed me the light. So we have to communicate that to people. I'm not confused, and you don't have to either. We're walking, and there's a lot of people in the church living in confusion, but you don't have to. I have the catechism. I'll show you what it means. And if I can't, I know someone who can Fourth, issue comfort. Oh, St. Thomas More, our patron saint, the patron of my parish, said we don't get to heaven on feather beds. 
And so he wore a hair shirt. He wore a hair shirt, as did Louis IX, the man after whom St. Louis is named. Uh, they wore hair shirts as a way to remind them, and these were men of standing. Saint King Louis was, of course, the king of France. St. Thomas was second in command in the realm of England. They wore hair shirts to remind them of their responsibilities to the fellow men that they were servants, not masters. And if we are servants, then we will eschew comfort and we will embrace suffering, not run after it, <laughs> not run down to the Colosseum to get martyred. I'm not advocating that. But we will eschew comfort in order that we might suffer, in order that we might participate in the redemption of the world. That when God gives us suffering, when God gives us a cross, we take it. We don't try to shirk it. And that means then a willingness to live with the poor, to, and this is radical, the Holy Father tells us all the time that we need to go to the margins. It's true, we do. But we can't be people who go there uh, just for eight hours a day. If the poor are going to be transformed through witnessing the lives we live, they have to know that we love them enough to live with them. And so that is what we in our parish decided to do when we bought this church 10 years ago. Next next month on the 18th will be the 10th anniversary of the uh, dedication of uh, St. Joseph Church. It's built in 1895, uh, but it had to be rededicated because it had been closed as a Catholic church, and then uh, we reopened it. Uh, we bought it intentionally because it is in the poorest zip code in northeastern Pennsylvania. If you look at the, the uh, quadrant, uh, we divide Pennsylvania into four corners. The poorest zip code in the entire quadrant of northeastern Pennsylvania is 18508. We came here on purpose because we're doing precisely what the Holy Father says all the time. Go to the margins, go to the margins, be with the poor. And this is, we did this before he became Pope. Remember, he didn't become Pope until 2013. We came here in 2012. This is what the Catholic Church does. The way that we change the world is by going into the sewer and turning it into the garden. And so that's what we have done, and that's what all of us should do. Sixth, practice the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. There are seven spiritual, seven corporal. And if we're going to communicate love, then people have to see us actually loving. That love is communicated not merely through words. Uh, it is not merely an emotion. It is an action. It is, in particular, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the altar of the cross. So they have to see us doing that. Seventh, don't complain. I have pointed out these contradictions today in order to hopefully educate and enlighten you. I did not point them out so you go complain about them and say how horrible they are. We are watching our enemies within the church hang themselves. Every day they contradict what the church has always taught. They lose more and more credibility. We don't have to complain. We don't have to complain. And we don't have to, like saying, uh, we don't have to uh, punch them in the face either, like happened at the Council of Nicaea. 
We don't have to do that either. Let them hang themselves. Not literally, obviously. But when you reject the truth, what St. John Paul II pointed out in uh, Veritatis Funder, The Fund of Truth, is in Cyclical from 1993. What he pointed out is when you reject the truth that God has handed down from time immemorial, you lose the gift of persuasion. And all that is left in your toolbox is coercion. And so if this agenda of the people who want to pervert the synodal process is to be realized, it isn't going to happen by them convincing us. It would only happen by them coercing us. Might makes right. Using power as a means to get their way rather than serving, as Jesus did, washing the feet of the disciples and teaching them the meaning of love. They are not being loving when they reject the teaching of the church, even if they couch it in terms of love. They are, in fact, losing credibility by denying what God has handed down. Could it be possible that in 1968, God says, no, contraception is still wrong as it always has been. And then in 2022, oh, now it's fine. God isn't schizophrenic. God is not manic. And everyone knows it. That is to say, those of us who believe in the God of love. God is consistent. And what is true yesterday will be true tomorrow. So those who advocate for immemorial truths to be changed are really hurting themselves. Not only are they imperiling their souls, they're also being seen by others, and they don't even realize it, as a farce. They're trying to curry favor with the masses, and the faith will say, you're pathetic, and I'm praying for you. So don't complain. Let your example do the talking. That concludes my remarks for tonight. And uh, well, I guess we'll take a little break now and be happy uh, to take questions. Thank you so much, Father Bergman. And um, it looks like we have a number of questions. Arthur, why don't you go ahead? Okay, so uh, Father Bergman, appreciate your talk. It was it was great. It's thorough. Learned a lot. I, I suspect that the audience is, um, you know, a little bit speaking to the choir about the concerns of the synodality. Uh, and I was one of the recorders for our own parish community and for the uh, diocese that I live in. And it seemed to me that the people who came to it were the only the people who knew about it, which were only the people who went to church. <laughs> so the, the things that were um, brought up would have been, I think for the most part, kind of acceptable to kind of this audience and what you're getting at. But I have seen, uh, my question has to do with clarification of your comment not to complain. I, I think it's crucial, and I'd like to hear what you think about this. I think it's crucial still, especially for people who have uh, some kind of professional background. I'm a pediatrician uh, to, uh, to instruct uh, clerics who uh, start 
decide they want to start an LGBT support group for their transgender community, which uh, I encountered at mass. I, I went to a mass uh, uh, at another parish in another uh, diocese where my uh, son-in-law and uh, and daughter live. And I was blown away that this was not an offhanded sort of thing. This was part of the announcements at the end of mass. And then the priest gave a little spiel about why we need to support the transgender community. And, and uh, in the vein of, we need to stop being prejudiced. I, I felt compelled to write to him and to the bishop of that diocese to say, look, if you want to sit down and hear from me as a pediatrician, why you're this is crazy and dangerous for children, uh, that's great. But you should know this isn't even consistent with Catholic teaching as far as I, I can tell. You're exactly right, though. But what you're doing there, Arthur, is, is exactly what I want you to do, which is to abide by the seven spiritual works of mercy, which is to reprove the sinner, to forgive sins readily, right? To counsel, uh, to educate the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful. You're doing all that in writing the letter to the priest and to the bishop. You did exactly the right thing. And that's indicative, of course, the Holy Spirit moving through you. Uh, What I don't want you to do is go then down to the bar afterwards and say, boy, that priest is an idiot. And here are the reasons why and I'm and I'm making a presentation with a chalkboard here about why he's such a moron. That is what I'm saying. You are being charitable. When I say don't complain, what I'm saying is don't be uncharitable. Uh, reproving the sinner and and forgiving sins readily and bearing wrongs patiently. These are all the spiritual works of mercy. We have to do those, uh, but we don't have to though then go commit detraction and uh, broadcast on our Facebook page uh, that. Father Swithins is a moron. Okay, so that's that's what I was getting at. Um, Father Bergman, we have a question coming in from Lauren. She's saying, in light of everything that you've said tonight, how should faithful Catholics approach these listening sessions in charity? Right. So the the way that you do it is, like I said, you're not complaining by saying at a listening session, for example, to someone, and I've I known this has been raised at it was raised at the uh, session that my daughter went to in in uh, Pittsburgh, uh, and she was appalled. Uh, but you're not complaining when you say, the Holy Father has said definitively, over and over again, not just John Paul uh, and Benedict and Francis, that women will never be ordained priests. Uh, this is this is not a topic open for discussion. It's never going to happen. So why are we talking about that here? We're, spending, we're wasting our time. We're spinning our wheels. And so let's talk about what will actually affect change. How can we be a more charitable church? How can we bring more people home? It's never going to happen. If you think it is, you're living in fantasy land. And so uh, please stop wasting my time. That is not... Uh, lack of charity that's simply calling people back into reality. We have to conform our lives to the church, not demand that the church conform its life to us. And so that isn't a complaint. Uh, it, but but, but when, when we take that outside of the listening session and then say, did you hear Mrs. Smith uh, talk about how much she thinks women should be ordained? Then we, then we fall into a lack of charity. 
so the, so there can be no gossip, uh, there can be no detraction, uh, the, but there, we can certainly confront people who are proposing things that are false. Thank you. Um, Maria, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself? So um, I was a little troubled with, um, you know, because the fall begins with a question, right? Did God really say? (laughs) (laughs) So it just really troubles me. I mean, what's your take on the fact that this is this entire process is structured around questions and really maybe one of the biggest problems in the church is that we ask questions like, why can't we use contraception or why can't you know, women have abortions or why can't, you know, they always seem to be these why can'ts. And um, what's your take on that? So so there's a misapprehension of freedom that we're dealing with uh, whenever that happens, uh, where where God has given us freedom not to do whatever we want, but in order to pursue what is good, holy, right, and true. So, and, and the freedom that he gives us within that, uh, the confines of living within the, the moral law that he has handed down, to his church, it actually is a means to happiness. And so to address uh, people who are asking those questions, it says, God has given us the guidebook of how not only to be happy in this life, but how to find eternal happiness. So if that's what you desire, then we have to form our conscience in such a way that we accept the teaching of the church, not ask when are they going to get changed. So the, so the, the asking the question is fine. Because the church has an answer. Why can't we use contraception? Because it's a lie. In marriage, we're supposed to pour ourselves out completely for each other, just like Jesus poured himself completely out for us. It's so simple to answer. So it's, the, the answer is so simple. Just give it and say, uh, it's settled. So do you want to be happy? Do you want to truly be happy? Well, then give that up. Crucify it. If your right hand causes you sin, cut it off. Well, cut that off. So... And you will, in fact, through that such a sacrifice, uh, find happiness. So that's how. So it's okay to answer the question. Let them answer. I want. I mean, to ask the question. Let them ask. I want them to ask. But then here's what the church's answer is, and give it to them. Uh, and if you aren't equipped to give it to them, say there is someone I know who can. Uh, Father Bergman will give you the answer. Cool. Or, you know, some other priest who will only teach what's in the catechism. Any priest like that will do it. And if I don't know the answer, I'll look it up and then I'll tell. Thank you for that, um, Father Bergman. Janice is asking, Father, is the lack of credibility in what many bishops say a new phenomenon, or are there examples of this throughout the life of the church? Oh, 100%. The, 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 the lack of credibility. Listen, I, I uh, last week, my favorite canon from the, the uh, Council of Trent is the one that says, as I said last week, that that a priest uh, cannot inherit the benefits of his father. That's from the Council of Trent, which ended in 1563. So think about uh, people say, "Oh, uh, we have we ever had a bad pope?" Yeah, uh, Benedict the Ninth. Look him up. Uh, elected three times. The first time when he was 18, he kept resigning. They kept reelecting him. He was, uh, he committed both adultery and sodomy while he was Pope. Then we had Alexander VI, who had a harem. He lived, uh, Alexander VI, and I went to see his apartments. You know, there's there's Raphael's that are in there, painted by Raphael, because uh, their lives, you know, were at the same time. Uh, Raphael painted, uh, adorned the papal apartments 
for Alexander VI. Uh, when Julius II became Pope, he was so appalled. And Julius II was no saint. He was the warrior Pope who'd go charging into battle. But he was so appalled by Alexander VI's licentiousness that he bricked up the papal apartments, thereby preserving these Raphael frescoes from uh, being lost. So we have these Raphael frescoes in the apartments of uh, Alexander VI that are in perfect condition. I've seen them. And, and so, you know, God, God brought good out of evil. And, and so we have these awesome artwork by Raphael preserved somehow because of the immorality of Alexander VI. So we, yes, the lack of credibility. When he became Pope, he bribed so many people. He was a Borgia Pope. He bribed so many of the cardinals. They carried the chests of riches across the uh, square uh, openly. So yes, we've been through this before and, and we're going to get through it again. What happens after time to this gross uh, lack of credibility on the part of so many bishops, what happens is there's an awesome explosion of evangelization afterwards. It's what happened uh, after the Arian controversy. It's what happened after the, the, the Great Schism in 1054. It's what happened after the Protestant Revolution. And here we're on the fourth time. We're in right now, we're like down in the valley. But uh, if we have some young listeners here, I might not live to get to see it. But the saints who are going to lead us out of this and are going to be like known as the great evangelizers, like St. Francis Xavier, they're already alive. And there's going to be a massive explosion of evangelization. There's going to be so many people coming to the church in the next 60 uh, to 100 years. It's going to blow your mind. Because when we go into valleys like this, the, the Lord uh, does it, allows it to show us the truth. And uh, what, what happens is saints are raised up out of this crisis, and we're going to see a, a, a great period, uh, like, like St. John Paul II said, new springtime of the church. We're going to see it. It isn't now, but it's coming. The trains, the, that train's already left the station. That is um, amazing. Thank you, Father Bergman. A moment of hope in this. Um, Lori, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself? Um, so I used to find it easier when opportunities arose to profess my faith, I guess is how, you know, to word it. Um, my husband's family is not Catholic. Um, some of them are somewhat religious. Some of, them are, some of their kids are agnostic and stuff. Um, they do have one gay marriage in that side. And then they have a child now that's like seven um, that is a transgender. And so when opportunities still arise, um, I still, you know, you love, love the person, hate the sin. So, you know, I try to explain, you know, that, that, cause they'll, they'll ask me cause they know I'm pretty well informed in my faith. Mm -hmm. And then he has a sister who is Catholic, but she's not as educated as far as she doesn't attend things like this or learn more to grow in her faith. And she was a convert at marriage, but she's been married a long time. But she now, because she's hearing all this, you know, things out there on the media and stuff and not from reliable sources is saying, well, you know, the church is accepting that now. And, you know, and one of her, her son is the one that's married. And it's like, you know, so she'll say stuff like that and stuff. So I guess I just don't know how to even profess my faith anymore when, you know, even Catholics, because of all the stuff that's going on out there, you know, it's not, I don't know how to word it, but I think you know what I'm saying. I do. And, and, and one of the things we have to keep in mind is there's some people who ask us questions because they really want to know the answer. There's other people who ask us questions because they want a gotcha moment. And they already know the answer. And they know that you're a terrible, horrible, hateful human being, and you're probably going to the seventh level of hell. 
You don't have to talk to those people. All right. Don't throw your pearls before swine. And you ask the Holy Spirit to help you discern who is sincere and wanting to know and who is not at all sincere and only wants to entrap you in your talk as Jesus dealt with it. But you know, you're not Jesus. So uh, he was able to turn everybody inside out because he's God, right? Uh, we don't have that capacity. So what we have to do is say, whom can I answer and whom can I not? And Lord, show me the way. So only talk to those people about these particular issues if they're sincere and wanting to know. And, and, and truly, uh, uh, you might be the conduit by which their lives are transformed. Uh, but don't throw your pearls before swine. That's not my words, that's Jesus. Andrea is asking, um, Father, from a practical standpoint, you, you mentioned the works of mercy. From a practical standpoint, how can we live with the poor? Right. Uh, besides moving into a neighborhood like mine. Right. How do you, <laughs> that, that is, that, that is, that is uh, absolutely, not all of us are called to be missionaries. This is one of the things that, that, uh, uh, that is my particular calling is to live in this neighborhood. I grew up in a steel uh, worker's neighborhood and I had a bar behind my house and uh, cops are all the time and uh, extremely violent high school. So I was prepared my whole life to live here and not be afraid and be completely at ease in uh, what is my home. But when we say uh, live with the poor, it is still possible, it is still possible to engage those who are not just materially poor, but spiritually poor. Because one of the things that my sister is fond of pointing out to me is that there's no lack of poverty in the suburbs. It's just a different kind. So uh, they, they come into our neighborhood. And I want you someday, if any of you ever have the opportunity, come into Scranton. And as you drive down uh, the street, you'll see what I'm talking about, material poverty. Uh, uh, but uh, there's another kind of poverty that is even more deadly. And it's one that fools us into believing that we have everything we need and we don't need God. And so I don't get a lot of conversations here in Providence section of Scranton about uh, my, my Heather has two mommies. That doesn't come up a lot. What comes up more often is questions like, can you give me food, Father? That comes up. Uh, I go out to the suburbs, then they want to talk about uh, someone uh, cutting off his genitals. We don't have those discussions here. Both discussions have to do with poverty. Both populations are poor. So when I say live with the poor, you have to minister to the people who are in your midst. Don't ignore them. Don't shut yourself off from them. Engage them. Be present with them. You are a uh, no man is an island, you know, famous John Donne poem. Of course, he was born a Catholic. No man is an island. Live that way. That's what I mean by living with the poor. What a wonderful discussion we've had tonight and some really good directives for us. Um, and certainly a lot for us to reflect on and implement in our lives. Um, Father Bergman, thank you so much for being with us the past two Tuesdays. It's just been a wonderful experience learning at your feet Hopefully we'll have you here at the Institute again very soon. 
Um, and if I can ask one more favor, could you please conclude us in prayer this evening? Absolutely. And since we've talked about uh, him so much uh, in these last uh, uh, two weeks, I thought that we should conclude uh, by offering up a prayer for our Holy Father. And this is taken from the properties for when we uh, say uh, uh, Mass for him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. O God, the pastor and ruler of all the faithful, mercifully look upon thy servant Francis, whom thou hast chosen to be shepherd and pope of thy church. Grant unto him to be in word and conduct a wholesome example to the people committed to his charge, that he with them may attain at last to the crown of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee, and into the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.